if individual countries solve their COVID problem, but COVID remains anywhere else in the world, all the rest of us will get reinfected. So COVID requires a global solution, just as smallpox required a global solution, just as climate change requires a global solution. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We sell ebooks and audiobooks, we make e-readers and apps, and we build technology and experiences that help people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books, as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo and Conversation. My guest today is Jared Diamond. He is the author of, among other books, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and The Third Chimpanzee. He is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He is a professor of geography with three other specializations, one in digestive physiology, a second in conservation biology, and a third in the biology of the birds of New Guinea. He won the U.S. National Medal for Science. He rediscovered a species of bird on the top of a volcano in the middle of New Guinea that was thought to be extinct for more than 100 years. His books are sweeping in scope. Why do some civilizations collapse while others endure? How understanding traditional societies can help us in the modern world? And for his most recent book, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, how do nations meet huge challenges and are changed by them? Jared Diamond, welcome to Kobo. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Books of this scope take a long time to write, and books as carefully researched as this one take even longer. So we know that you didn't see a global pandemic coming and decide to dash off something quick and topical about nations in crisis. What has it been like to launch a book about nations in crisis right at the time when there seem to have been so many nations in crisis? In short, good luck. <laughs> when one starts a book, you don't know. My books take five to seven years to write. And of course, when I began to write Upheaval in the year 2013 about crises, both national and worldwide and personal, I could not foresee in 2013 what was going to happen to the United States in 2016, a national crisis, nor could I foresee December 2019, a global crisis. But what is bad luck for the United States and bad luck for the world is good luck for me as an author. Namely, I wrote a book about bad things, and lo and behold, there came along bad things. Because this book was quite painstakingly put together, can you tell me a bit about the genesis of upheaval and the process that you went through as you were starting to assemble it. What got you started down this line of inquiry? There were two things that got me started on it. One was that as I reflect on the countries where I've lived for the last 60, 60 years, 70 years, and where I speak the language, where I have friends going back a long time, all of those countries either were about to go through or were in the middle of or were coming out of a crisis when I um, was living there. For example, I was living in Germany on the day that the Berlin Wall was erected. And I began working in Indonesia in the aftermath of Indonesia's genocide of 1965. And I was living in Chile in the run-up to the 1973 coup d'etat. So part of it is that my life experience made me interested in the crises that be, befall nations. The other 
piece of it is that my wife, Marie, is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in crisis therapy. That's different from the usual long-term psychotherapy in which you have, can spend years exploring what happened to you as a child. In crisis therapy, something bad has happened, and all of us have been in crises. Breakup of a marriage, death of a loved one, getting fired, financial setback, a crisis that makes you realize that the way you've been operating your life just isn't working, and you have to find a solution fast. So crisis therapists like Marie have to help their patient, their clients within six weeks. There's always the risk of suicide. And each week, Marie would come home from the office having discussed with a fellow therapist the prospects for each of the clients. And as Marie talked to me about the outcome predictors that make it more or less likely that a person needs to resolve their personal crisis, it dawned on me, oh my God, similar factors apply to the outcomes of national crises. And so it's those two things, my life experience and the therapeutic experience of my wife, Marie, that led to this book. And in the prologue, you talk about the creation of crisis therapy and your own connection to events around that growing up in Boston. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. My first secure memory. Um, Kids don't form secure memories until they're about four or five years old. The first datable thing that I can remember is that just after my fifth birthday in Boston, there was a horrible fire called the Coconut Grove Fire in which a nightclub where soldiers were were home on leave, the doors got closed, there was a single exit, a fire broke out. Within an hour, 493 people got burned and trampled and asphyxiated to death. But my father was a physician, and dad talked to me about what was going on in Coconut Grove because he was among those who had to mop up the mess. Coconut Grove, it turned out, not only did lots of people get killed, but their relatives and friends were traumatized because the relatives and friends had survived and their own spouse or child had gotten killed. And so the survivors were really upset. Coconut Grove required not just surgeons to fix those who gotten burned, but it required psychotherapists to help those trying to make sense of their lives. And so Coconut Grove, which I heard about at age five, that was the foundations of crisis therapy. And from that study of crisis therapy and from your wife's experience, you've pulled out these essentially conditions for successfully coping with crisis that you've then mapped onto the experience of countries. Can you talk about some of those characteristics of how you come through a crisis successfully? The characteristics are ones that are going to be very familiar to every one of us from personal experience. All of us know that, that if you're precipitated into a crisis, your marriage is just broken up. The first thing you got to do to resolve the crisis is to acknowledge that you've got a crisis. If you deny that you're in a crisis, of course, you can make no progress towards resolving it. But similarly, countries, when a country is in a crisis, if the country denies that there's a crisis, as has been substantially true for the United States since 2016, if you deny a crisis, you're not going to make any progress towards resolving it. There's one obvious parallel. Another obvious parallel is that all of us know from personal experience that if you're in a crisis, your marriage is broken up, you've been fired, 
It's a big help if you can get help from friends, either emotional help or material help from friends. And it's a big help if you can look to friends for models of how they solved a similar crisis. But similarly, countries do or don't get help not from friends, but from allies. And countries may look to other countries or may refuse to look to other countries as models of how to solve a similar problem. That's examples of how outcome predictors for personal crises map onto or suggest outcome predictors for national crises. And then there were a few of those predictors or of those qualities that are unique to countries and that don't really map to individuals at all. Can you talk a bit about those? Perhaps the most obvious predictor that applies to countries but not to individuals is leadership. When your marriage breaks up, you don't need a leader. (laughs) You don't have a leader. You need yourself. But countries, groups of people, have leaders. And so for countries, leadership is important in resolving crises. But leadership has nothing to do with the resolution of personal crises. Or again, group discussions. If you have a personal crisis, you have to figure that out for yourself. There aren't group discussions involved, but national crises do involve group interactions, group resolutions, group discussions. So those are perhaps the two biggest differences, the two biggest features of national crises that don't have parallels in personal crises. This book crosses the globe and specifically the modern era. You examine Finland through World War I and II and through the Cold War, Pinochet's rule in Chile, Japan starting in the Meiji Restoration and then moving through the 19th into the 20th century, Indonesia under Suharto, post-World War II Germany, and then Australia emerging out from under the shadow of Britain. There are a long list of candidate countries that have experienced crises of different kinds. How did you pick these ones? I picked these ones because these are countries in which I've lived and I've had intense experiences. They are countries where, with one exception, I speak or spoke the language. The only country that I wrote about in the book where I did not speak the language was Japan, but I have Japanese relatives to compensate for that. But in all the other countries, Indonesia, Finland, Chile, I spoke sometimes fluently, sometimes haltingly, the language, but enough that with the language I could make better sense of the country. So in short, I picked these countries not because they're a random sample of the world's countries. They're not. They're the countries that I know best and which I've been involved with for decades and decades. And as you were setting up this parallel between the crises of individuals and the crises of nations, your first illustration of crisis in this book is a personal one. This is probably the only book about nations in crisis that has ever included a story about difficulties in gallbladder research. You are correct that there is not a large literature on crises of gallbladder research. Nevertheless, the first chapter of my book, because the book is basically about the light that personal crises cast on national crises, the first chapter is an account of personal crises. And I began that first chapter with the most acute professional crisis of my career, namely in my first year of graduate school at the University of Cambridge, when I was beginning research on the gallbladder and a small, unimportant organ, but an excellent model for important organs like like the kidney and intestine. My experiments were not going well, and I almost dropped out of 
research. I almost dropped out of science entirely because the experiments weren't going well and I was losing faith in myself. I was losing confidence. Um, I thought that this, this choice of my career was not well matched to me. Um, fortunately, I, I came out of it, okay. I got help from my parents, which made a big deal. But I began then my first chapter with this example of a personal crisis. And that personal crisis, in some ways, reached its crux point in the first country that you analyze in terms of looking at a national crisis. Can you tell me a bit about uh, the experience of Finland and how this is a good example of the kind of coping and evolution that you're investigating? Sure. Finland is that Scandinavian country next to Sweden on the west and next to Russia on the east. I spent my first summer in Europe in Finland. I picked up the Finnish language by going around and listening to people. That's not something that usually people can just sort of say off the cuff, I picked up Finnish, because it's not exactly the easiest language to learn. It's a really difficult language. It has 15 cases, whereas Latin has five cases. It's not Indo-European, so every word in Finnish is unlike any word in English, and you got to learn the words from scratch. But I love languages, and this was the first time in my life that I picked up a language not from a book, but by talking with people and listening. I just loved it. And so when I got into difficulties with my scientific career, I was thinking of dropping out of science in order to become a translator. I was going to go to Switzerland and learn to be a simultaneous translator for the UN. Fortunately, the, the experiments began working. But Finland, when I spent that summer there, my hosts in Finland were the veterans and the widows and the orphans of Finland's terrible war against the Soviet Union. In 1939, Finland, this small country then of four million people. It was invaded by the Soviet Union with a population then of 150 million. The Finns managed to fight off the Russians to a standstill. They suffered lots of deaths and, and the largest child evacuation in history. But when I visited Finland then, my host, these veterans and orphans and widows of that war against the Soviet Union, talked to me a lot about the, fin the history of Finland. It was gripping. Finland got through this crisis by honesty on their part, by a strong national identity, without getting help, without getting models. But Finland came out of it making changes. This country that had been a poor rural country, as a result of this crisis, ended up as a rich industrial country. And so Finland was a really gut-wrenching example of a country that faced a crisis and came through the crisis intact, in fact, stronger. That's why I chose Finland as the subject of the first of my national chapters. And one of the things that you highlight in looking at Finland is that need for a clear examination of the situation in which a country finds themselves in. And their unflinching look at what their circumstances were and how they had to act within those circumstances. That's true. Finland failed to do that before World War II. And since World War II, it has excelled in honest self-appraisal. Before World War II, Finns say our geography will never change. By that, they mean that Finland will always be next to 
gigantic Russia. It will always share a border with Russia. Before World War II, the Finns did not take that into account. The Russians had their own security issues. They wanted discussions with the Finns. The Finns ignored Russia's request for discussions. In short, the Finns were not being honest about this situation. And the result was they got invaded and lots of them got killed. And they nearly lost their independence, but they fought it out. After World War II, the Finns learned their lesson. They recognized, we have to be honest, we're always going to have the Soviet Union or Russia on our east border. And nobody's going to help us. Nobody helped us in World War II. Nobody's going to help us now if we have trouble with us with Russia. We have to be, be honest in maintaining a good relationship with a communist although we're a democracy. And so the Finns, ever since World War II, have made a big effort to keep in constant touch with the Russians, make sure that the Russians trust the Finns, make sure that the Russians will never worry that they're going to get invaded from Finland. That's been the essence to Finland maintaining its independence and its freedom of action ever since World War II. So Finland's an outstanding example of a country with a strong national identity, with cold honesty, recognizing the bitter truth of the situation and taking account of the situation. It also highlighted for me how difficult it is to understand the context in which countries are making those decisions when you're sitting at a remove outside. And you point out this term called Finlandization, which was seen very much as a, a pejorative about a country that was bending and compromising. One still hears that expression today, Finlandization. What that refers to is that, that Finland, after World War II, when Finland was in effect deserted by its traditional allies, partly because the allies couldn't get to Finland and offer any help to Finland, the Finns realized we're on our own. We have to have a good relationship with Russia, even though we don't like Russia. So Finland maintained this, this attitude of, of honesty towards Russia. That upset lots of people outside Finland. Here was this democracy that was intent on maintaining good relationships with the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union invaded Hungary and democracies around the world protested, the Finns kept their mouth shut. Why did they keep their mouth shut? Because the Finns knew that it wouldn't do any good for them to protest the Soviet invasion of Hungary. It would simply damage their relationship with the Soviet Union. So what the Finns learned is that we're thrown on ourselves. We have to maintain a good relationship with the Soviet Union. Other countries refer to that as Finlandization. Finlandization means the idea that a small, outnumbered country allows itself to be pressured into things by a big, strong country. Well, if you are the United States, a big, strong country, the U.S. is not going to get pressured into anything by any other country. But if you're a country of four million next to the Soviet Union, and you've already discovered that your allies aren't going to help you, you better be sure that you maintain good relationship with that country. And so you have to make compromises that a big, strong country would not make. That's Finlandization, which is the essence of Finland's successful foreign policy, but which other people who don't understand Finland, including me when I first visited Finland, regarded as despicable. A theme that comes up throughout the countries that you look at is this is this notion of 
national self-image, of people having a sense of who their country is and what their country is, and how that becomes a resource that they pull on or lean on in times of crisis. Yes, national, national self, national identity, a sense of national identity, national pride is important for holding a country together, particularly under stress. In the case of Finland, at the time of the invasion by the Soviet Union, uh, the Finns speak the Finnish language and nobody else in the world speaks the Finnish language. And it's a beautiful, but it's a really difficult language. The Finnish identity is shaped around this language that they are unique in speaking. The Finnish national epic, the so-called Kalevala, in the Finnish language, every Finn can recite this national epic, the Kalevala. Kalevala is more important to Finns than Shakespeare is to British and Americans. So Finland was helped to get through this horrible experience of the war of the Soviet Union by this strong sense of national identity. All of us share something in common. We are Finns, we are the only people in the world who speak our language. As a counter case, the United States now, the US, yes, it has a national identity. We think of the United States as the, the land of rags to riches, unlimited possibilities. But the United States, sadly now, we are losing our national identity. It's not that all Americans agree on some things. It's Americans are increasingly polarized, and that's a big source of weakness for the United States. So national identity, other countries have national, Japan has a strong national identity. Indonesia, after World War II, becoming independent in 1949, Indonesia had to build up a national identity. National identity is essential to a country to get through a crisis. It's a rallying point for all the citizens of the country. Some countries learn and are shaped by the crisis that they go through. I was interested in reading your book to see how countries can also forget the lessons that they've learned coming through crisis. You describe this in the story of Japan, where on one hand you can see the triumph that comes from very clear self-appraisal, and at the same time the disaster that could be caused by lack of honest self-appraisal as a country. That's true, and that's as true of nations as of individuals. If a nation succeeds once, that doesn't guarantee that the nation will succeed in a new mess. And similarly for people, if your marriage has had difficulties and you resolve those difficulties, that doesn't mean that you have a clear run for the rest of your life and that your marriage will never have, have problems. In the case of Japan, Japan's crisis that I described in the, the third chapter of my book, is perhaps the outstanding example in the modern world of a country making massive change and responding successfully to a crisis. Japan isolated itself from the rest of the world for two centuries, and that isolation was ended by force in 1853 when the U.S. sent a fleet of metal steamships on with guns. Japan had no metal ships, no guns, no steamships. The United States sent a fleet to demand that Japan offer help to shipwrecked American sailors. And the Japanese realized that they got a big problem, that they are too weak to fight off the West. So Japan, in that period from 1853 to 1910, just before World War I, Japan adopted massive changes, um, learning from the West. Japan adopted parliamentary government. Um, Japan um, adopted 
national elections, Japan adopted a system of education, and army and navy based on Western models. But the change was selected. Japan retained its wonderful writing system. Japan retained the emperor. So that's an outstanding example of successful dealing with a crisis. It contrasts with what Japan did in the 1930s, whereas in the, the 1800s, Japan was as realistic as were the Finns in recognizing their situation. And Japan did not overstep itself. Japan did not undertake a military expansion until it was ready to do so. In the 1930s, Japan was blind at the government level, partly because Japan ended up controlled by the Japanese army, particularly by young soldiers who had not been out of Japan unless to Nazi Germany. And those Japanese just did not realize the strength of the countries that they were planning to attack. The result was that Japan in the 1800s was outstandingly successful at resolving its problems. Japan in the 1930s ended up in World War II, attacked the United States. It was not that Japan made a blunder and ended up being attacked by the United States. Incredibly, Japan attacked the United States. And yes, they succeeded in sinking or putting out of commission our eight battleships at Pearl Harbor. But that was an example of a tactical success that was a strategic disaster because there was nothing that could more guarantee Japan's ultimate defeat than Pearl Harbor that called, caused all Americans to rally around Japan. That's a long-winded explanation of Japan being outstandingly successful in the 1800s and then making disastrous decisions in the 1930s. We often find ourselves almost you know, slapping our heads when looking outside into a particular country and saying, why can't they see what they're doing? Why can't they see where they've gone off course? Is it harder to have honest self-appraisal of a nation when you're inside it? Or is, it, you know, is honest self-appraisal as a nation just a rare commodity? It's an interesting question. When you're outside a country, one might say that you can step back and take a look. But on the other hand, if you're outside the country, you don't know the country well enough. So there are plenty of examples of honest self-appraisal within a country. The United States, at the time of Pearl Harbor, just after Pearl Harbor, the United States did undertake honest self-appraisal and recognized that we had to mobilize for war. Uh, Japan, in the 1850s and 1860s, undertook honest self-appraisal. A counter case is the United States today. There are areas all too familiar to us Americans of Americans not undertaking honest self-appraisal. Prime examples include our healthcare system, our system of education, our prison system. Those are areas with which Americans are routinely dissatisfied. We complain about our healthcare system. We complain about our educational system. And yet the United States, we've got our neighbor, Canada. We have our allies in Western Europe that run healthcare systems and educational systems to the satisfaction of their citizens. And yet Americans will not learn from the model of how Canadians and Australians and Japanese and Germans and British people run their healthcare and their educational system and their prisons. That's a case of, of a lack of honest self-appraisal on the part of Americans today. Crisis, as you point out so readily, is a multifaceted word. There are personal ones, there are financial crises, environmental crises. Are the crises that are faced by nations different? And what made you decide that countries are the best unit of measure, in a way, as opposed to a city or a region or a planet? 
as far nations they're well defined. One could also talk about crises at a subnational level. Um, for example, in Italy, southern Italy has been in a chronic state of crisis ever since the unification of Italy. Going to the opposite extreme, the world. The world certainly uh, is entering a new crisis now, but the world has been in an increasing state of crisis for the last several decades as a result of global problems, problems faced by every country around the world. The global problems are, first and foremost, of course, climate change, depletion of essential resources such as forests and seafood and topsoil, inequality around the world, and then the crisis that can kill the largest number of people in the shortest time, the nuclear risk, the risk of nuclear war. So the world faces world crisis, now we face the COVID crisis, and as a result, even before COVID, the last chapter in my book, a, a book that began with one chapter on personal crises and then had 10 chapters on national crises, the last chapter was on the crises facing the world. One of the things that made this book so interesting to read is that you can feel your many fields of studies seem to pop out in different ways throughout the book. In the prologue, you talk about the ability of nations to undertake selective change in response to crisis. Am I reaching here to say that it feels a bit like looking at a country through the lens of a biologist or an evolutionary biologist? I would say it's looking at a, at a country through the, through the lens of a psychologist um, rather than an evolutionary biologist. I do lo lots of looking at things through the perspective of an evolutionary biologist. But in this case, I was looking at countries through the perspective of a, a psychologist. As a geographer in this book, you are constantly bringing up borders, topography, physical barriers, or lack thereof. You strike this very interesting comparison between Japan and Britain, two island nations, almost as a way of brushing aside the idea that geography is kind of the core determinating fa factor in a, in a country's development. Geography makes a difference. Let's think of some opposite extremes. I mentioned the example of Finland, a small country with a misfortune to have Europe's largest border with a country much more bigger and more powerful. As a result, Finns have to be careful. The opposite extreme is the United States, which is protected on the east and west by oceans and is protected on the north and south by neighbors Canada and Mexico, neither of which is about to invade us. So the United States enjoys, has enjoyed relative impunity, um, contrasting with Finland. Another contrast case is Germany. Non-Germans think of Germany as a country that imposes its will on the world. And certainly is the case in World War II that Germany attempted to impose its will on the world and failed disastrously. But look at a map of Germany, whereas Finland has a border with Russia on the east and Sweden on the west, and that's that. And the United States has a border with Canada on the north and Mexico on the south, and that's that. Germany has borders with about 13 countries by land and six countries on the ocean. And so Germany has to be very careful. German politicians who've ignored those constraints on Germany, like Hitler and like um, Emperor Wilhelm in, in World War I, have led Germany to disaster. Whereas German leaders who've recognized 
the severe constraints under which Germany operates, such as Willy Brandt and Angela Merkel now, and then Chancellor Bismarck in the 19th century. Those leaders who recognized the geographic constraints on Germany were the ones who were the most successful. Most of the crises you describe have violence as a common characteristic, or at least a, a thread that runs through them. Invasion or threat of invasion, war and its aftermath, political repression and torture. So your choice of Australia as the as the final country to look at was interesting. A generally peaceful country, threatened by war, you know, but never invaded. What does Australia's experience detaching itself from Britain sort of it teach us as a uh, as another version of a country in crisis? Well, Australia is an interesting counterexample because, as you say, um, several of the chapters of my book are about countries that were precipitated suddenly into a crisis. Finland, by the invasion of the Soviet Union on November 30, 1939. Japan, by the arrival of Commodore Perry's fleet. Chile, by the Pinochet coup d'etat on September 11, 1973. But in Australia, um, the crisis of Australia that I wrote about was a slowly unfolding crisis that did not have an explosion. When I first went to Australia in 1964, Australia still had a white Australia policy, meaning that Australia allowed immigrants only if they were white and preferably from Northern Europe. And yet Australia um, is near Asia. Gradually, in the 60s and 70s, the Australians realized that their white Australia policy was inappropriate to their situation because Australia, after World War II, found that most of its trade was developing with Asia rather than their traditional trade part, partner of Britain. And so gradually, Australia had a slowly unfolding crisis, not precipitated by a war, but, but slowly triggered by a recognition that their identity of a white outpost of Britain was no longer matched to their circumstances of a country geographically near Asia, whose major trade partners were Asian. And so during the time that I've been working in Australia since 1964, Australia has abandoned its white Australia policy. Now Australia gets lots of immigrants from Asia. When in the year 2008, one of my two sons um, in college in the United States, took a semester abroad in Australia. And so I took Joshua to Australia, to Brisbane. He was going to take a semester at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. I took Joshua to Brisbane, walked with him across the University of Queensland campus. And for me, knowing Australia from 1964 was a shock because the UQ campus is like the University of California Berkeley campus. It's an Asian majority campus. In, 19, in 2008, that was Australia's new situation. In 1964, that was unthinkable. So that was for me a dramatic example of how much Australia had changed in the 45 years since I had first visited Australia. One of the encouraging things about reading upheaval is the recurring examples of countries identifying challenges and then meeting them in various ways. How do we do when it comes to larger problems, when we look at issues like climate change or global pandemics, are there lessons that we can pull from the experience of nations or does the scale 
change the kinds of solutions we can look to? Yes and no. And, and people who interview me or talk with me eventually get sick of Jared Diamond's yes and no answers. But here's, here's your first yes and no answer. Um, so scale, scale makes a difference. And in other respects, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, the world now faces world problems of COVID and climate change. Um, essential to solving those world problems, just as essential to solving the national problem and solving the personal problem, is acknowledgement that there's a problem. Um, the world now is acknowledging COVID as a problem. The world has not acknowledged climate change sufficiently as a problem. There's also the issue of identity. Nations have national identities that you and I have talked about. The world has not had a world identity, and yet the world has to collaborate in solving COVID. If individual countries solve their COVID problem, but COVID remains anywhere else in the world, all the rest of us will get reinfected. So COVID requires a global solution, just as smallpox required a global solution, and just as climate change requires a global solution. If, for example, Canada controls the carbon dioxide levels perfectly over Canada, that doesn't mean that Canada has solved the problem of global warming and climate change because the atmosphere around the world is mixed. Climate change is a global problem, but the world has not had a global identity because we have not faced a global enemy. The United States on December 7th, 1941, did face an enemy, Japan, Finland faced an enemy, um, the Soviet Union. The world has not seen itself as facing a world enemy, but now with COVID, we do have a world enemy. And so I have some optimism about COVID. It's a horrible trap. In the last three weeks, my wife and I have lost five friends, including some of our closest friends died within the last three weeks. So I acknowledge the extent of this tragedy. But my hope is that out of this tragedy will come the recognition that COVID is a world problem. And if the world can solve the world problem of COVID, maybe that will motivate us to solve the world problems of climate change and inequality and resource depletion. I'm going to take you all the way back from this very global perspective to a very personal one and talk about your roots first as a reader and then as a writer. Can you tell me a bit about those books that were first formative to you as a childhood when you were first starting to read? Yes, I can tell you that the first book formative to me um, as a child, um, my mother, who was a teacher, started me reading at age three. And one of the first books that I read was a wonderful children's history of England called Kings and Things that went through British history on the framework of one king after another. I still have that book, Kings and Things. Um, it's upstairs here in my house. Um, and it helped kindle or form my interest in history. My interest in history was also formed, of course, by growing up in World War II, when history was hitting us in the face and killing so many Americans, people around the world. But Kings and Things, which I still have, that was my first book that cemented my interest in history. And so, obviously, there was, history continues on through your written work, but you ended up in the sciences. How did you make that jump? I made the, the jump. Is it a jump? Well, my, my mother was a linguist and teacher, but my father was a physician and a medical scientist. So when I was growing up and people asked me, Jared, what are you going to do when you grow up? My routine answer was 
what any child would say. I would be a doctor like my daddy. And when I went to college, I was pre-med. Towards the end of my years in college, I realized that I did not want to practice medicine. The closest thing to medicine, though, was to go into medical research, into biological research. And so I went to graduate school in physiology um, and developed a career in the biological specialty of physiology. I developed a second career in ornithology, ecology, and evolutionary biology, working on New Guinea birds. And so I've had these two arms as a scientist, namely laboratory research, which I eventually closed down 18 years ago, and field research on New Guinea birds. And yet this through line of of looking at bigger issues of history has continued on. How did that first turn into the idea for your first book as you were working as a researcher, as you were kind of deep into the world of physiology? My first book for the general public, The Third Chimpanzee, I published in 1991. The trigger for it was the birth of Marie's and my twin sons in 1987 just short of my 50th birthday, when my twin sons were born, I realized, Jared, the future of your kids is not going to depend upon gallbladders. You're the world's leading gallbladder researcher, but that's not going to make a difference to your kids. What's going to make a difference to Joshua and Max is the world around them, the geography and history of the world around them. And so the birth of my twin sons then motivated me to start writing books for a broad public. That first book, The Third Chimpanzee, looks at humans as derivatives of animals. Of course, we humans are not animals. We wear clothes, we speak, we are now, you and I are now, now communicating with each other, and we have grammatical speech. But on the other hand, we are animals. We've got gallbladders, we've got brains, we have hair. Um, humans are, are animals, and we're recently derived animals until 100,000 years ago. We were really just a glorified ape without much impact on the world. And so that first book of mine, The Third Chimpanzee, looks at supposedly distinctive human qualities. One might say art is unique to humans. Language is unique to humans. But we humans were just another animal, a glorified ape 100,000 years ago. So human art and language has to have animal and religion. They've got to have animal antecedents. That first book of mine, Third Chimpanzee, then looked at how human art and human language and human genocide evolved out of their animal precursors. And when you were adding that additional track to your life of becoming a writer of popular nonfiction, what were the books that you were looking to or what were the books that were most formative to you as you were starting to see yourself as a writer? There were a couple of books from the beginning. Thoreau's Walden. I read Walden for the first time in high school and in college, and it had such an impact on me, such a devastating impact on me. It was Walden that nearly sent me out of science, because the message of Thoreau's Walden is, figure out what's really important to you, never mind what other people say. Be true to yourself, figure out what's important. And Walden, ever since I read it for the first time, and I've never dared read it again. Walden told me, pick what's important to you. And even if the rest of the world doesn't care about New Guinea birds, work on New Guinea birds. In fact, I've got a lot of mileage out of New Guinea birds. <laughs> so that's 
one book that was important to me. Another book that was important to me, Winston Churchill's sixth volume, History of World War II. I began reading that. I still have it upstairs here. Winston Churchill's six volumes that, that I think my father bought for me when I was 10 years old. I've read it and reread it and reread it. It's a powerful book because it's a book about crises, about countries such as Britain in the 1930s making big mistakes and ending up in a worse crisis. But Churchill also writes beautifully. He has a, a gift for a turn of phrase. He also has a gift for seeing the, the moral significance of human actions, of military action. Just as an example, Churchill describes the case of a, a French admiral who was a Vichy collaborator, collaborated with the Nazis during World War II. And Churchill describes the case of this Vichy collaborator admiral, and then concludes by saying he broke down under strains. Let us all be grateful that we have not faced such strains and how we deal if we face the strains under which he broke. That's just, it's a page and a half, but it's beautifully written and it draws a big lesson from a person and from an episode in history. As a you are a physiologist and a biologist and a geographer who also writes about history. So you've spent time both in the very quantitative data and experiment-driven environment, and then also in this more narrative world of history. How do you reconcile or even try to bridge those two different kinds of writing and research? A short way of answering that interesting question is that I practice history in the way that I practice New Guinea ornithology. By that, I mean that with my background in laboratory science. In laboratory science, you do experiments. You set up the experiment. The experimenter himself or herself sets up the test tubes and adds a chemical to one test tube. You create the difference, and you then observe the result of that difference that you've created. Well, when I'm out there in New Guinea in the jungle working on New Guinea birds, if I want to understand how the lowland mouse babbler affects the mountain mouse babbler, if I were a New Guinea physiologist, I would exterminate the population of the New Guinea lowland mouse babbler on a particular mountain and see what happens to the mountain mouse babbler. But first of all, it's considered not nice to do that. It's illegal to do that, and it's impractical to do that, and it's immoral to do that. I had to find out some other way of discovering the effect of the lone mouse babble on the mountain mouse babble. And I did it by what's called a natural experiment. I ran around New Guinea looking at different mountains. And in some mountains, for various chance reasons, the mountain mouse babbler is there, and in other mountains, it's not there. And so by these natural experiments, experiments created by nature itself, I could examine the effect of the mountain mouse babbler on the lower mouse babbler. Similarly with history, you can't do manipulative experiments if you want to see, for example, whether those borders, whether the United States' isolation by oceans and by our non-threatening neighbors has played a big role in American history. 
If we were a being from the Andromeda Nebula, we would come to the planet Earth, we would test that theory that the U.S.'s borders affected American history by pushing the continents around and pushing Europe against the Atlantic seaboard and pushing Asia against the Pacific seaboard, and then rerun history and see if history turns out differently for the United States. Well, historians cannot do experiments like that. Historians have to resort to natural experiments just as students in New Guinea birds have to resort to natural experiments. Historians have to compare. And so my approach to history is always an approach of comparisons. I compare different countries just as I compare birds on different mountains. I don't do manipulative experiments. I do natural experiments, but it means that I'm always comparing. I never, I've never written a book about the history of a single country, whereas most historians write books about one country. They'll write a book about late 19th century Germany. Well, there's a quip of historians. He or she who writes a book about one country ends up understanding no country because there's so much insight that you can get from comparisons. You also advocate for a multidisciplinary approach to how we research history. And is that an outgrowth of your scientific research or just your, your own sense of the shortcomings of traditional historical research? It's the former. It's that my, my background um, was one in which my parents encouraged me to be interested in lots of things. I went to a wonderful secondary school, Roxbury Latin School, where although I expected to make a career in the sciences, I took languages and history and geography. And so I've always been interested in lots of things. I've been inter interested as scientists in genetics and linguistics, but genetics and linguistics import, offer important clues for history. For example, Finland, where did the Finns come from? Well, the best evidence where the Finns come, come from is their language, the Finnish language, which is closely related to other languages in, in Western Russia. So linguistics and genetics and animal and plant biology are important clues for historians, but they're not part of the routine training of historians. They were things that, that I learned and that I found useful in helping me to understand history. You are careful in this book not to address anything too contemporary. You shy away from Brexit in the UK or America in the time of Donald Trump. How far back do we have to stand before we really understand the shape of a crisis and its implication for a nation? Well, good question. That, that also illustrates why I love having conversations like the one with, with you now, because that's a question that I hadn't thought of. So how, how far back do we have to, under, do we have to stand? Um, how, how many years does it take coming out of a crisis? The Finns came out of their winter war came out of their war with the Soviet Union in 1944. Already from 45 onwards, the Finns learned their lesson. There's an example of quick learning of a lesson. Australia was much slower in learning its lesson. Australia's situation, Australia's image of itself as a white outpost of Britain, the reality of that collapsed in World War II when Britain was no longer able to protect Australia. But it took Australia decades maybe 40 years, 30, 35 years for Australia to shed its British outpost um, image. All of which is a long-winded way of saying that some countries learn quickly and some countries learn slowly. There are people who learn a lesson quickly and there are people who learn a lesson slowly and there are people who never learn a lesson. Well, so many lessons to be drawn from this book. 
Jared Diamond, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. I've been speaking with Jared Diamond. His latest book is Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. It and the other books we've mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at Kobo.com conversation. So many good authors there. Please be sure to catch every conversation by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. It helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tandon. Thank you for listening.